Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash mtp, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp, the number four, and the letter u.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. I'm here today with Aaron Rice, and Aaron is a serial entrepreneur from the UK. And despite his uh, quite young age, Aaron has uh, more than a decade experience in the publishing industry. And uh, Aaron's is, uh, so to speak, one of UK's teenage boy wonders. And uh, I'm really glad he's, he's here today and talks to me. Welcome to the Judgment Call podcast, Aaron. Thanks for making this happen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know it wasn't easy. It took us a while to schedule this thing. And um, you, you just uh, spoke about that. Uh, you're in a remote village now in Portugal, right? You're not in London anymore? Yeah, not in London. Um, I left London uh, back in 2018. Um, oh, okay. So almost three years now um, since I've left the UK. Um, but yeah, it's been a, a crazy uh, experience so far. What made you go um, to Portugal? I know you've been traveling quite a bit before, but why did you select Portugal? Just because it's close to the UK, it's sunnier, cheaper? Ultimately, yeah. Um, yeah, close to the UK, close to family. Um, I, I, I treat Portugal more of a, like a base. Um, you know, I still try and do a lot of traveling. Um, obviously, with the, the current situation, that, that's not the case. Um, But, you know, prior to that, yeah, more, more of a base for me. Um, but the reason I really ended up here is I was doing the, the digital nomad thing, traveling around. Um, I spent a lot of time in Bali um, and it got to rainy season. And I was like, okay, I, I need a change. I went to Portugal, didn't like it, went back to Bali, didn't like it even more. And then I went back to Portugal and was like, okay, I'm happy with this. So it was a kind of yo-yoing across the world. Um, For a number of months before I was like, okay, well, yeah, Lisbon is uh, the city for me. Um, I met the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I, I felt being like, bunged up in a little apartment in the wildest parts of Lisbon um, with no real outside space. I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to try the, the remote life um, in terms of living remotely. So yeah, I now uh, I'm currently based in a, a village of uh, 22 people in central Portugal. 
That's pretty spectacular. Um, I can imagine, I can't imagine you putting your cowboy boots on, but, but that's kind of how it sounds. Like, there's a bunch of farms um, where you are? Uh, it, it's not so much farms, it's more forest. Um, there aren't that many animals. Um, you literally walk out of my back gate and you're in, um, well, thousands of acres of uh, eucalyptus forest. Um, so people harvest that. It's kind of the main crop around here. Well, you mentioned you've been a digital nomad for quite some time, and it's it's something that that I've been pondering about with, with other guests on the podcast. We we I try to you know so to speak raise the image of the digital nomads. I think a lot of people subsume different things with the same word digital nomad, right? For me, it always was was the the ability. To, to see the world why I do what I do, right? To, to build my startups and to go out there and still and take my family um, and see the world in a way that I was always curious about. And this, this is what, what, for me, I don't think I put this label a digital nomad too far out there, but I feel um, it helped because all I needed literally was, was a decent accommodation, some, some decent food, and um, I, a lot of coffee shops for me. I'm, I'm kind of addicted to caffeine. And, and um, you know, fast internet connection and explore the world. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people, um, and we had Niels a couple episodes ago, who was very stark, um, you know, devil's advocate, and said, you know, digital nomads, those are all the drunk Americans who basically just go for four weeks to go from one place to party to another place to party. And Bali is a prime place for this, right? Um, um, the Mediterranean is another prime place for this. And uh, this is pre-COVID, but it might come back, it might not. Um, so a lot of people associate different things. It's kind of when you say the word tourist, right? You, people think of tourists and you think of the, the drunk Brits in Mallorca, or you think of tourists who, uh, I don't know, go on an adventure trek in, uh, in Morocco. Um, so there's different, different things that people subsume under the same word, right? Uh, you know the travel industry very well. Um, we'll, we'll get there in, in just one second. Um, how do you feel about this word digital nomad? Is it still something where you feel like this is something you happily use and uh, you, you've, you've had a good time being a digital nomad? Or do you feel it's kind of, there is something evil out there and it's just, there's way too many people doing this the wrong way? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I, I think, personally speaking for me, I never set out to become a digital nomad. Um, and that's maybe not the word I would use now to describe myself. They say that Portugal and uh, Lisbon specifically is a place where digital nomads go to die. So in essence, they just end up staying there because it's such a fun city. Um, a lot of people get really lonely in Portugal. Sorry to interrupt, but a lot of people get really lonely in Portugal. I think that a lot of people leave Portugal despite being it's so such a good place to live otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, yeah, I've not heard any you know, stories myself, um, but... Yeah, I can imagine that, especially in winter. Lisbon uh, is very rainy, very grey. You don't go outside that much. Um, so, yeah, I, I get that. Um, but, yeah, for me, I left London back in April of 2018 uh, with my partner. And really, we just set out to have a big holiday. That, that's what it was. Um, I had recently sold a, a business um, and I, yeah, I wanted a break, basically like a, a mini sabbatical, retirement, whatever you want to call it, where I thought, okay, for six months, I'm just going to go and go to a bunch of places that I've never gone to before and I really want to visit. So for me, that was um, kind of the French Pacific Islands, um, 
which are a very long flight from the UK. So I had a stopover in California, which was fun. Um, then we went down to New Zealand and Australia. Um, and I wasn't meant to be doing any work on that trip. Um, but I actually got a bit bored, a bit itchy. Um, so it was in New Zealand where I came up with the idea for Simple Flying, which is my current company. Um, so I almost became a digital nomad without wanting to become a digital nomad. I, I find myself then working, building this company whilst on the road. Um, and it was the plan to go back to the UK after that six months. Um, but then, you know, I kind of got a bit addicted to a uh, nice weather, um, lower cost of living in certain places. Um, you know, especially in Bali, you, you, your lifestyle can be great. Uh, and the same with Portugal. If you compare that to central London, where, you know, a one-bedroom flat is going to cost you at least half a million, you come to central Portugal, um, you can get a five-bedroom house for 50,000. So it's, uh, you know, polar opposites. And uh, I think if you can have the ability to work online as long as you've got a good internet connection, um, then why not make the most of the world and uh, experience life to the fullest? Um, so that's kind of what I've done and where I stand. And I, I think there is a lot of kind of negativity to world, towards the word digital nomad. Um, and yeah, it, it's, you know, it depends on person to person. You, you do see some crazy people in Bali who are just, you know, drinking every day and partying. And that, that's certainly, I mean, yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't doing that. I had too much work to do. I was, uh, <laughs> I was more inside than uh, outside yeah. enjoying the beach and partying, you know. Um, I say parties for the weekend, you know, Friday nights or whatever. But um, yeah, nothing ever crazy. Yeah, I think for, for me, digital nomadism really means I can not just choose what I want to do, um, you know, I never held a job in my life. I basically always worked for myself. Um, that might have other reasons, but that was something I, I, I always felt that's a luxury. And the, the other thing I always felt is I was not just really curious. I felt that's something I want to do anyway. So I'm trying to find a way to do this, right? You can wait until retirement. I think that was a strategy for our parents. We said, you know, when we are 65, if we go there. But then there's a lot of other issues, you know, you might have health issues, you can't just go to a third world country and uh, you, you can go, but I mean, your doctors and everyone around you will say you're nuts, so you probably won't do it. Um, so you, you restrict the places you go and these places turn out to be more expensive than you thought and you end up staying home. Because if you're retired, you also have less money to look at, right? So I always felt like I want to do this now while I still have, um, you know, all the all the little screws in my head um, before, before it gets too late. And you, you won't have that problem. So we... We, I introduced you very briefly only, and that um, um, well, was, was certainly too short. Uh, you, you started your first company when you were 11, right? And you, you scaled it up um, mostly through Facebook from what I, what I remember um, when, I, when I saw another show you did. Um, you have um, an, an incredible knowledge in terms of um, Facebook and the way to scale a business using digital advertising. Um, you, you seem to be, that's one of the best interviews I've ever seen. Um, I thought like you, you are the hacker of Facebook um, from, from a marketing point of view. And um, the way, I think it was your dropshipping business at the time when you, when you were on that show. And I, there's very few people who have that amount of knowledge at that young age and, and can talk about it so eloquently. Um, how did that happen? Uh, how did you? How did you? When you when you were and I, I remember you were really really young. You were only eleven. How did that feel to you? You felt like this is 
just what all the 11 year olds do? Um, you never had any trouble with this or you felt like, well, I, I want to prove myself and I want to show that I can do better. And that's why you got into entrepreneurship in the first place. I think when I was really young, you know, prior to the age of 11, um, I had a very kind of overactive brain. I always needed to be doing something. Um, so I used to love school. I was active. I was always thinking about things and I used to come home and I was very bored, very irritable. Um, so then I got a laptop for Christmas um, and that was sort of my uh, escape, my avenue to kind of begin creating things, begin doing things. And uh, the first business I launched, it, it had nothing to do with paid advertising. It was an organic gaming website, um, a lot of Facebook traffic, a lot of Google traffic, um, but it was effectively a site to help people play certain Facebook games. Um, so those of you who are listening might remember the uh, games like Farmville, Cityville. Um, you probably used to get those annoying invites from friends asking you to water their crops and all of that. Um, so my first website was around that. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it went from there really. Um, and over the years, I've literally launched countless businesses, countless websites, and uh, a few of them have succeeded. Yeah, I think... Um The challenge is, you know, to to a find the time and b as a kid be I don't know be mature enough to to actually be be able to to be confident enough. And you were talking about um, hiring employees to co be confident enough to actually execute these businesses, right? A lot of kids get into it; they do a little app, and then it just it goes. They they do something else. They discover a new sport, or uh, they discover their girlfriend or boyfriend, and then um, the 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 whole attractiveness of, of, of being in business, so to speak, is over. You seem to be set on, on entrepreneurship from a very young age. Um, is, is that something that's in your, in your family um, or you, you had like a role model? You were looking up, I don't know, to Elon Musk at the time or maybe there was another role model at the time. Um, wh wh where do you think this comes from? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, you know, no one in my family is an entrepreneur. Um, You know, by trade, my dad is an engineer and my mum works in an optician. So not entrepreneurial, really. You know, they've got solid careers, um, but they, they've never had their own business. Um, and in, in terms of role models, when I was growing up, I, I didn't really have anyone in business. It was very much the case of, I, I love the, when I was doing the gaming website, you know, at the age of 11 and 12, I found it exciting to have a presence online which was my own like i had created this and uh i i think you know that was a, a driver and then also the fact that it, i just found it stimulating i got a, a buzz i got a, a, a kick of uh, doing this um and you know when it began to make money um i did some affiliate marketing on the gaming site i was selling some guides um yeah i mean it, it was great And it, you know, enabled me to build up savings and ultimately launch the next business, which again was a, another gaming website. And um, probably, I don't even know how old I was then, maybe like 14 when I launched the, the Minecraft website. Yeah. Well, from, from what, I, what, I, what I heard you, you speak about in another podcast, and hopefully we can um, resemble a couple of these things, you, you seem to be an in terms of marketing avenues and you know a lot but i was just reading this on twitter a lot of people say the the founders here in silicon valley who are the ones who 
who double down on marketing in the sense of that they experiment a lot. Like they, they, they go out to the forums and they, they, they get initial customer feedback or user feedback, so to speak. And they, they, there's literally nothing, nothing sacred. Like they, they go into every avenue until it's completely explored and then they scale it up. And I know you've been scaling up a little Facebook marketing campaigns from $2 a day to hundreds of dollars a day. And, uh, that takes a lot of guts um, and also a lot of persistence. Um, I, I've been doing this myself when I felt like, oh my gosh, this is just, it's just so boring. I just can't come up with ideas anymore. I'm like, I'm looking at this and it's the same interface, right? It's such a non-creative task that you have to do. You have to keep going. Like you have to experiment. Let's try uh, different product descriptions. Let's try different ad descriptions. Let's try different ad campaigns. Let's do different targeting. Let's do India. Let's do, um, that's, that's, I heard you say that. That's a really, really um, useful a way to go to lower income countries, build your social reputation, get enough likes, um, build up a certain campaign and then move to the targeting around. There's so many variables and I don't know how you keep up the energy to do this. Let's put it this way. A lot of people get frustrated at some point and they say, okay, this doesn't work. Let's go on to the next thing. But do you seem to have that energy to go deeper and deeper until something works, right? Um, how do you find the time and the energy to do this and determination? Um, I don't anymore. Well, no, with uh, Simple Flying, my, my current business, uh, I don't do any paid advertising. But back when I was with previous companies, um, I, yeah, I, I get a buzz of, um, I don't know, data spreadsheets. I'm a bit of a nerd in that respect. So, you know, when you're presented with, I don't know, you're, you're starting a campaign at $5 a day, um, and you can examine this, the click-through rate, the, the cost per click, and all of these different variables. And it's like, okay, if I, I don't know, change the headline for this story, how will it affect the campaign? And I, yeah, I get a buzz from it. But yeah, it, it is tiring. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, and I think the, the way I've always gone about it um, in paid marketing, in organic marketing, whatever it is, I've always kind of created stuff that, I would be interested in reading. Um, you know, I take kind of the natural approach. Um, you know, a certain headline, you know, I would write it in a way that I would be interested for and hope it, you know, it sticks with the masses. And uh, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but over time, you know, you do this for years and years, you end up kind of figuring out what works and what doesn't um, in different kind of marketing strategies. Um, with different platforms, Facebook, Google, um, et cetera. So yeah, it's kind of building up that knowledge and, you know, co yeah, constant testing, that's the word. And you're right, it's uh, it's very tiring, um, which is why, you know, the, the business I've got now, we don't do that. It's uh, it's very different. But uh, when I was doing all of the, the Facebook marketing and uh, native advertising, um, yeah, your, your life is testing. And um, it's, uh, yeah, you're sat behind the screen looking at data. Um, which, yeah, which is fun. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I would want to do it for uh, 50 years, you know? Yeah, I was, I was, I was hoping you say that. Um, then I think um, that if, you, if, if people have a secret recipe to, to, uh, to keep up that energy, to um, that would be amazing, and I think this is this is kind of when you think about startups. Sometimes it is um, you just you just have to be the last one with enough energy. It's like a fight, right? So you you just have to have enough energy to be left standing. The, literally, the last person left standing is the one who gets all the money. And in startups, I feel 
it is often like that. And um, you, you just, everyone else already tried everything. And then you come up with this one thing that was maybe experiment, experiment number 1000. And because we have this incredible leverage now, um, especially digital marketing paid for is very scalable. If you can find one of those things, it, it, you get the whole market, right? So literally, you, you do go through 999 unsuccessful experiments, not just with startups, but also just with marketing experiments, paid or non-paid, right? So I think it also holds true for, for what, what you're doing now. Um, the, the, if you have the stamina to, to be there, I think that's kind of what, what I've been observing. Starting businesses and uh, creating um, a value stack is relatively easy. But marketing them is getting harder and harder because everyone else has the same problem, right? The only real fight left is fighting for that customer attention. And uh, uh, that doesn't mean you make money with it, but it is the biggest fight out there. And if you, if, if there's a trick to kind of prep your mind to say, okay, this is just experiment 997, so don't worry about it, it didn't succeed. Just wait two more, right? Or I don't, we don't know where it ends. It might be 5,000 or it might be 100,000. I was hoping you have like a trick how you tricked your mind into this and say, oh, don't give up. Um, tomorrow can be the day where you make $100,000 just from one single ad, right? Yeah. Um, to be honest, I, I don't really have a trick um, when it comes to paid marketing and stuff. I think for, for me now, my biggest trick is running something I'm truly passionate about. Um, like, with simple flying, I always wanted to become a pilot. Um, you know, figured out I was scared of flying um, at quite an early age. I, I'm not now, which is good. Um, but you know, I, I feel when you have a real passion for something, the the energy will will be there. You know, long term. Um, and in the past, when I was running my gaming sites and uh, you know, marketing agency and all of that, I was passionate, but I don't think I was passionate enough. Um, so I, I think I've found like the golden egg, if you will, um, with this latest business. And it's been the, the longest business I've been running now without getting bored, panicking and kind of selling it. So, uh, yeah, okay. I, I think it's great. So for me, my, my magic bullet would be literally being incredibly passionate about something. And then you'll have the, uh, the drive to do those 997 campaigns that don't work. And then you find the free that, that work and you end up making good money. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough order. It's a tall order. Um, I want to talk about the genesis for your current startup. I know you want to, you want to get there. Um, so yeah, we, we, from what I read and I hope you can illuminate it for us, you, you, um, were in your sabbatical, you were in Australia and, uh, you, you were scouring the web and trying to find the next business, right? Or also organizing the next places you to go and you're doing a sabbatical, right? Uh, I, to be honest, I wasn't even scouring the web uh, for my next business. Um, you know, whilst I was traveling, I was booking a lot of flights, reading a lot of flight reviews. Um, and I didn't really feel like there was a, a go-to website for me personally for aviation news reviews and um, you know all in one place um you know there's a lot of in, in my space now a lot of competitors out there which which do do it and do it well um but you know quite perhaps credit card orientated or whatever orientation they've got um but for me i just wanted pure aviation content and uh 
nothing more. And uh, yeah, that, that's what I ended up creating. But it was very much like it just came to me one day whilst traveling. Like, okay, actually, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. Uh, I'm rather bored. Um, you can only sit on a beach for so long before you go crazy. So uh, yeah, that, that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, that's taken off. It's a, it's a wonderful site. I, I like it a lot. Um, I feel the, the, and the, the way you, 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 you analyzed this back in 2018, it certainly is a strange industry. Um, on one hand, um, the, uh, the mileage blocks who, who, I don't know what's wrong with it. I went to, to a lot of, um, something called the frequent traveler university. So what you do, those are organized by, by boarding area, um, primarily, but it's in a, it's an independent group. And, um, what I've noticed, and I, you know, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Um, it's this relatively strange crowd out there. I, I was really, I, that was my first exposure to that crowd, right? It's, it's a little nerdy in that sense, but it's also, and there's a lot of really curious folks out there. So that's great, right? So I would, I would describe them as the consumer of these news who basically wanted to travel and find an affordable way to travel in, in, in style sometimes, but they just want to go places. Sometimes, um, that hobby of generating miles and points is, is getting a little bit the best of them. But then I found this, it's, the industry is kind of resembling a little bit the, the travel industry. I don't know if you have the same impression. It's a, it's a very small um, industry with, with a bit of a tunnel vision and is always worried about everything's going to fall apart tomorrow. And because right now it did, right? You, you see this with, with the travel industry, which lost 95% of their business. And, um, they have billions and billions of dollars of, of debt as for the airlines, right? The hotels are a little better, but still a lot of real estate projects with hotels were maxed out, um, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and there is cyclical downturns in the travel industry. They always happen. This one is worse than ever, um, but it is, it is a natural occurrence for that industry. It's very boom and bust. And I always felt... for. Me coming from, you know, I've, I've had exposure to the automotive industry, to the healthcare industry, finance industry. My startups were in, I had a prior travel startup um, that I sold. I always felt this community is a little strange. And then I had a, a product that I pitched to Alice and I felt like this is, this is the exact mirror of this. So I don't know what, what your gut feeling is about the industry. I always felt it's, it's quite removed from, you know, What's happening in Silicon Valley, so to speak, um, from, from a digital, a very progressive, forward-looking approach, it's kind of very steeped in the past on one hand, and has a lot of legacy coding, for instance. It has a lot of legacy management styles, but it is kind of putting some paint on it. Like I'm, I'm talking about airlines right now, but hotel chains is the same problem. They put some paint on it and say, oh, we are so 2020 and uh, we are so progressive. And I always felt this is hilarious. Um, do you feel the same, or do what's your 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 gut feeling on the travel industry? Um, I mean, as a whole, right now, obviously, it's been absolutely decimated um, with the coronavirus. Um, but you know, often out of these big disasters, these you know big meltdowns, comes innovation and comes you know new products and exciting opportunities. Um, but, you know, you can't beat around the bush at the moment. All these airlines have billions and billions in debt, which is going to take, you know, 5, 10, 20 years to pay back. Um, so I, I think really now it's the survival of the fittest. And 
for the new startups coming into play, these all these new airlines, it's um, you know very good. Um, they're, they're coming in with uh, no debt, um, so we're going to see a lot more innovation. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know really crazy. Um, you know you can't really uh, put it to words. You know. Yeah, I mean it's it's. Um, I think most people are not are not really aware of the the magnitude of the change. You know, when you think of most businesses, say. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of tragic examples in the in the hospitality industry now. But say you run run a factory and you make chairs, right? And you produce a hundred thousand chairs a day. And then the next day, people say, "Oh, by the way, we only need your customers." They stop placing orders and say, "Oh, but we only need one thousand chairs." So you're ninety nine percent less, and you're like, "Okay, I can do this for a while, right? That's not a big deal." But then um, no follow up orders appear. And you're like, hmm, do I still have? Do I still need that factory or not? So the demand changes are, but it is intrinsic to the travel industry. The demand changes on the good and and the and the, on the negative side, they're they're ginormous. Um, and I think most businesses um, they don't re- they're not really exposed to this kind of volatility, even on Wall Street, right? Well, like the travel industry is like GameStop, right? So we we but that's kind of the most volatile thing out there, and you know almost took Robin Hood down. And I think. Uh, most people aren't exposed to this, this volatility and don't really, I mean, they hear 90% and they're like, hmm, I don't know, I mean, it's 90%, but they don't really know what that means. Right? There's thousands and hundreds of thousands of flight attendants or pilots who, who, who basically sit at home, they might get a partial payment or some unemployment benefits, but it isn't an industry where the pilots, you know, were the most sought after com- commodity for, for a decade, if not two. You know, it was almost impossible to find pilots and uh, I was actually working on an airline venture in 2018. I'm so happy I, I didn't go through, right? We, didn't, we never got funding for it. But it already was tough to find planes. But it was even harder to find, to find qualified pilots at the time. That seemed to be a real problem. And I'm like, this really changed a lot. And um, I mean, it's taking longer. And as you say, it will take uh, longer to get out of this. It will take a couple more years. Um, and there's always a phase, I feel there was one in June last year where people f- were quite positive um, and started to travel, came back. And then it died down again, say October, November. And I feel now we see another like, more optimism rising. So I'm not sure this is the, the final version of this. It might go through a couple more phases. Yeah, I think it, there's going to be a lot of sort of mini bounce backs like we saw last summer. Um, I mean, certainly in Europe like right now, it's uh, looking quite bleak, um, especially in the UK. They've just introduced a, a mandatory hotel quarantine for their red list countries, which means, you know, when you fly into the UK, it's very similar to Australia. You're driven to a hotel and you, you have to spend two weeks there. Um, obviously, that that is not good for air travel. Um but yeah, it's uh, it, it depends on you know what the vaccine situation goes like and all of these new strains and you know who, who knows. Um, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully there will be an end to all of this. Um, but yeah, I mean, interesting well, well, for sure. Yeah, what I've been finding, and that's kind of my own personal strategy. I've I've realized a lot of destinations that I kind of dismissed on my on my quest to see every single place in the world or every single country and also every single region. There's a lot of places that I dismissed um, because I didn't find them as interesting or they were too cumbersome. They are now accessible, right? And other places like most of Europe um, are not accessible, and a good amount of African countries are also still closed. So 
um, you can you can I feel or I've been going there the last six months um, just you know to get them off my list and and experience them. Um, obviously, it's slightly different. Um, there's a little less going on. A lot of places are closed inside the country, but I I, I for me personally that actually is something I. It gave me a new perspective, right? You, you don't have to choose from 200 countries or from 150 anymore. Now you can choose from 80 countries or 60 countries, right? depending on your passport and depending um, um, on your budget. And um, I, I hope it stays that way, right? I hope it stays that a certain amount of countries is a bit psych counter-cyclical. Because I felt this time that that's pretty rare. It's definitely the first time in my lifetime that something happened everywhere on the planet pretty much at the same time. It's a big recession. Um, and it's a lot of restrictions, and you know the whole digital nomad life is is, is gotten really tricky. It's still doable um, if you stay in one spot, but you can't just bounce around the planet as easily. It needs more planning, and more. Some places are just off the limits, like in Asia now. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I don't think I'll ever take travel for granted like I did. Um, I mean, right now at the time of recording, I physically cannot leave Portugal unless I have some crazy emergency, travel is banned. And it's the same with the UK right now. So really, um, a, a lot of people, uh, especially in Europe and Australia, are a little stuck. Um, but, you know, come summer, okay, I think things will open up and I will definitely be making the most of that opportunity to see countries a bit more lo you know, locally, like Spain and France. Um, as you said, like historically, I would have written them off and I would have flown to Singapore or flown to Hong Kong, you know, somewhere more exotic. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm excited for the summer and, uh, yeah, going to places that I wouldn't normally go to, if, you know, if there wasn't a pandemic. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think overall um, it's, uh, yeah, interesting and, uh, yeah, it, it leads to different opportunities, doesn't it? Yeah, um, you know, I went to, to Yucatan, um, the Mexican Caribbean coast, um, because there's no entry restrictions in Mexico, or I haven't been in the last six months. Um, I enjoyed this tremendously. I've been to Mexico a lot, but mostly to Mexico City and to the West Coast, um, to, to Baja California before, but never to Yucatan. So I thought that was awesome. And most of South America, um, so there's Ecuador, I'm planning a trip to Ecuador, Costa Rica, um, went back to, to Colombia or, or countries that are open. Um, finally, um, Chile opened up. Uh, Argentina is kind of making up its mind. I'm not sure what's going to happen if they, they go ahead with opening up the country. They wanted to do this on 1st of January, and now they say it's going to be middle of February. But, you know, it is almost middle of February, and nothing really happened. So there's a, there's a lot of places I've been, but I haven't been to, you know, places inside the country that I always wanted to explore that um, are coming back. And... I find it really interesting in Africa, things are all over the map. Um, there's places like Uganda where it seems to be easier than ever to get in. They've, they've lowered the cost of the visas, um, but they only need a COVID test five, six days um, old. And then there's places um, like Ghana where you have to take a COVID test on arrival and you will be charged for it, and irrespective if you have taken one before. Um, so it's, plus you have to pay for the visa on arrival. So, um, but one thing that, that happened in the US, for instance, and that's kind of interesting is a lot of places, a lot of um, um, airfare from Canada, because Canada is in a similar situation as the UK, is very difficult to, to leave because you have a similar hotel quarantine at least planned. It's not yet happened, but I think it's going to happen any day now. But so the airfares from Canada to, to Europe and to, to Africa are really low. But you can always transit, right? You can come from the US, transit in Canada, that's not prohibited, and just take, take 
take advantage of those airfares, I thought, well, this is a really interesting opportunity. Suddenly we have $200 airfares from, from Canada to, to Africa. That's pretty stunning. So there's always something. It, it, takes, it takes more hacking, I feel. The whole travel takes more hacking than it was before. And maybe, maybe there's a good thing to this. And you, you mentioned Bali earlier, and, and I have this with Thailand. I went to Thailand 20 years ago, and I was, I was stunned by the beauty, the natural beauty of the island. I was on some small islands. There were a bunch of tourists, but, you know, I don't know, maybe 100 people but, and a decent uh, local uh, population. And then I came back 15 years later and it was basically all speedboats and uh, hundreds, thousands of tourists and spilled up resorts and on these little islands. I'm like, man, this is really sad. I mean, I understand everyone wants a piece of paradise and I, I, I understand this, things change. But that's really sad. And a lot of those people, I didn't have the impression, and that's my personal opinion, I didn't have the impression they should be there. Let's, they, they haven't gone through the effort of appreciating travel and gone through the effort of educating themselves and knowing a bit of local customs. They didn't know anything, right? Because it wasn't required. But now I think this is changing, right? So if you are still traveling, then you 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 got to get your game together. Let's put it this way, right? It's It's harder. It's definitely more demanding and it can be more expensive. Not necessarily, but it, it attracts a different type of traveler, so to speak. And I think... Yeah, it takes a lot of good. planning now. Yeah, this is kind of good. I think this is, these are the people who are, you know, I don't want to say explorers, but those are the people who, who put a lot of effort into familiarizing themselves where they go. Say so they go to Bangladesh now because it's open and then they can go to India and do a Jaipur trip and do, you know, a tour, but they do two day, two months in, in Bangladesh. Mm. So I think this, there's, there's, some, there's some real good in this. And um, it's something was offered tourism um, for the last 10 years anyways. I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, but there was a strange, strange crowd attracted to it. Yeah, I, obviously it became very, very accessible with the rise of cheap airline fares and a lot of competition. Um, I, I, I think, yeah, there are definitely positives to the situation now as the tourist and as the traveler but you know on the other side of that you have a lot of businesses struggling um you know especially in portugal um on the south coast we've got the algarve um which is you know very popular with tourists and it sustains the economy down there effectively with all these hotels and restaurants and with the pandemic um obviously there's a lot of struggling down there now and uh yeah, we, we just hope things open up for the summer. But yeah, uh, there's always two sides, I think. Yeah. Well, it's it's like Nassim Taleb said, right? If you if you don't get volatility and the travel market didn't have any since 2001, basically, then you get an even bigger impact um, because this volatility happens anyways. You just don't see it uh, in the market. And I think that's what we just got. And I, I always trace this, um, and that's, you know, leading a little bit away from travel, but... I, I'm always surprised how much people are, are ready to, to cloudify themselves. And I call, what, what, what I mean by this is that they all went virtual. Um, they didn't protest at all about, I mean, never protest, but they were really sporadic about all the restrictions imposed. And irrespective of, of what we see was the impact of those restrictions, I always felt maybe people felt inside themselves they've overdone it a little, especially also in terms of tourism. They've overdone it a little and they felt like, okay, let's take a break for a couple of years. I mean, initially it seemed like a couple of months, right? But it was kind of obvious that it might take longer. And they were 
and you, you're younger, right? For you, that's kind of it's the base level, right? You don't know what what was happened the last fifteen years. But I always felt there's a bit of a a bad conscience that people have, and that's why they were so ready to to go virtual and to to say, oh, we we, we actually traveled too much. It was too hectic. Why don't we just chill out for a couple of years? Yeah. Um, to be honest, like personally, I found it quite grounding, quite relaxing that, um, you know, prior to coronavirus, I'd be on a plane every, I don't know, few weeks. I'd be off somewhere, I'd be doing this, I'd be doing that. Yeah, hectic is the word. Um, but then when the lockdowns were imposed, it was just like, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm actually going to think about everything, think about life. And uh, yeah, that resulted in me ending up in a village of uh, 22 people. But, um, you know, it's different for everyone else. And uh, yeah, uh, time for reflection. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what it what it what it what it brought us. Um, that might have been a cheaper way to get there. <laughs> um, the the I I know you 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 um, spent some time in investing in real estate. Um, how do you how do you go about places where you invest? Is that something where you consider living? Is that something where you you attracted to the property price? Uh, how do you, how do you find? Uh, these places, I always find, and I always stayed, stayed away from real estate because I always felt, man, I don't know the local area good enough. I haven't spent enough time here. And B, I don't know if I ever want to come back. Like my friend bought a huge property in Argentina and I'm like, do you want to participate? And I'm like, I'm not really that interested because I don't know what's going on with Argentina in the first place. Second, I have no clue about this place. And I don't want to settle down there, worst case. Is that something you take into consideration or you, it's, it's, you want to make money with those places? So the real estate that I own back in the UK are basically like city centre apartments, um, both in Manchester and Liverpool. Um, I grew up in the area as a child. Uh, my parents still live there. So the, the properties I bought, um, you know, the northern cities of England have a better return than, let's say, buying in London. Um, so that was one attraction. Um, another attraction was I had funds from companies which I've sold and, you know, I didn't want that money sat in the bank. Um, so yeah, I, I put it into property. Um, but with every property I've bought um, in the UK, and I now own two and another two which are being built, um, I, I've always said, you know, I could live in these. You know? So, so um, not, not like I necessarily would, because I'm, I'm happy where I am now. But if I were to be living in Manchester or were to be living in Liverpool, I would be very happy to be living in the apartments I own. So, um, yeah, I, you know, ultimately it's to provide a, a, a rental return and um, an, an investment, if you like. Um, and then here in Portugal, it's, you know, the opposite. I'm not really that bothered about a return on, on the house I'm living in now. Um, it's, it's a place that I bought to live and to be happy and the money I put into it I'm probably not going to get back in a, you know, when it when it gets sold because it's uh, Portugal and the market's very different. Um, in the UK, people buy property, they decorate it, they put in a new kitchen, and they've added thirty grand. You do that where I am in Portugal, and the the, the value is pretty stagnant. Um, so for me, it's here, you know, buying real estate here. It's uh, for the lifestyle and um, and for my own enjoyment. Um, with that being said. Um, I do have plans to build um, some sort of rural tourism units here. Um, so basically sharing 
what I love about the area um, that I'm in now and uh, effectively making uh, an Airbnb or two. Um, there's so many dilapidated properties here. Um, the population of Portugal is in decline. So, um, and then you've got a lot of uh, rural to urban migration. So, you know, you take my nearest biggest town, I think the population there has gone from 12,000 to 6,000 in 50 years. So there's all these abandoned buildings um, which can be renovated and you can let those out to tourists. And uh, yeah, I, I think where I am, it's a, a very unspoiled part of the world. And uh, people are only just sort of realizing that it's actually a very cool place to visit. And obviously in the summer, the weather's great. So um, yeah, that, that's my plan long-term with real estate to basically share the, the way I live uh, with tourists and, and keep it quite um, exclusive, never kind of mass, you know? Yeah. yeah. It, I think for quite some time, I don't know if it's still, it's probably not, not a real business anymore, but it was very popular to, especially in Asia, to build apartment um, buildings and then sell them, obviously, but most of the buyers would rent them out of Airbnb pretty much right away. And the idea was, so like Cebu is a, is a prime example for this. Um, you could buy an apartment that was brand new built. You know, the standards obviously vary, but it was, it was very decent from what I saw. It was really cheap, $40,000, $50,000, a decent sized apartment, like a one bedroom. It's probably too small to really live in, but it's great to rent it out and um, $50 a night. Um, so you would, <laughs> you would have a healthy margin um, from when you, when you can rent it out in Airbnb, right? And at the time there was a lot of demand so that seemed to be, for a lot of people, their main focus, you know, buy something. Um, and it makes a lot of sense in my mind, if, if you can predict the Airbnb revenue um, somewhat, is to find a place that is relatively cheap, um, easy mortgage or pay in cash, depending on how expensive it is, and then just rent it out on Airbnb and hope for the best. Um, you know, nobody can predict these things 100%, but the margin of safety in certain locations where I went, and Philippines is probably the best example, seemed enormous, right? So the prices for for the apartments were kind of similar to say Liverpool. So, I mean, there wasn't like London, but it was, was, was not cheap or was like most of Europe. I think Liverpool is one of the, the cheaper places in Europe, um, that area, fortunately. And uh, the, the, the building costs were extremely low in the Philippines. So I thought, oh man, this is gonna make a lot of sense. Do I didn't know anything about the local market, so I never ventured into it. And I'm sure there's lots of other examples in, in, in Asia where this was, um, you know, really spawning off a building boom and people had, and I know this in the U.S. too, Airbnb hosts um, had 30, 40, 50 properties. I'm like, holy smokes, you're a real estate magnet and you have a slight, tiny sliver of equity, right? You're not required to put in a lot of equity and you really finance this from, from Airbnb winnings because I call them winnings because, I mean, they were, if you if you get an 80, 90% usage rate, um, you, you made a ton of money above your mortgage payment, so... That was a business you couldn't lose money in until last year. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, you know, the properties I've got in the UK, they're for long-term tenants, they're young professionals. Um, I could have gone down the Airbnb route, um, but I didn't really want the hassle. Um, and the primary reason for me buying these properties was more um, not for a crazy Airbnb return. It was just a, a, an asset to keep and to hold and hopefully that the value of that would go up over time. Um, but then obviously in Portugal with these rural uh, tourism uh, cottages or houses, whatever route that goes down, um, 
again, I'm not wanting a crazy return. I'd be happy, I don't know, with 7% a year, like really low for Airbnb. Um, but again, it's uh, the, the lifestyle here and these houses and whatever it is I, I, I end up doing, it'll be for, you know, when family want to come and visit as well. And yeah, who knows? But it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's what's next with you? We we only we, we spent too little time on simple flying. Um, I mean, maybe we, we can go back for a moment. And um, I know you you you've it's it's growing a lot. It has a huge following on on uh, on YouTube. Um, um, and also it, it ranks very well. So it does very well with, with people coming in. What's what's next for you? You guys want to launch something new? And uh, you said that earlier. You're getting a little tired. As a, do you have a bigger plan for it? Where, where, do you, where are you at right now? Um, well, yeah, I'm certainly not tired with simplifying. Um, I think it's it's the most exciting, you know, the, the business has ever been. Um, we're of a, a good, stable size now, which is enabling us to, you know, venture out and, and do other things. Um, so obviously we've got the two YouTube channels um, which are doing well. Um, I, I'm, I'm long term, it's it's really sort of cementing the site as the the go-to place for aviation. So we're going to be bringing in different types of content, um, you know, more podcasts, more you know, different email lists for different categories on the site, and uh, really just trying to build our authority and uh, trust within the market. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you're pretty far ahead with this, so um, that that sounds like a good continuation. Um, mm. is, is is there something uh, like outside of simple flying that you have in stores? Another startup you you're planning, or you really want to focus on this for now? You know what? I really want to focus just on simple flying. Um, I'm very content with the business. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I I think now um, I, I I'm not really wanting to make millions um like i know i could potentially do with another startup or you know whatever business route i want to take but yeah this is more sort of I, i'm passionate about it i'm able to make a good enough income um and i'm enjoying life um you know it's, it's very much life first and then uh you know simple flying is is there supporting that and uh, I say the same as well to my employees and the contractors who work for the site as well. I, I want to be as flexible as possible. Their life comes first and then, uh, you know, there's, there's work for them as well. It's, it's very much like a work-life integration. Um, it, yeah, basically, the, the happier I can be and my employees and contractors can be, the better. Sounds like Southwest. <laughs> Remember that, that yeah. Southwest story, right? That's how they, they change management and how they... They really pulled off an airline was something that was already way oversaturated at the time. We thought, right? There was so much growth that that happened since, but at the end of time, we felt like they cannot succeed because there's nothing there. And then they really attracted a different crowd, and the way they, they the employees were managed and how they, they they felt about the company. And I think if 35 years later, you can still feel that, and that's 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 an incredible. Um, I was talking with Niels about that. There's a bunch more examples for companies who who have done. It's, all they did was basically change their management style. They did everything the same as all the competitors, but it's an industry that grew or not. Well, you know, you can think of supermarkets even, like the stuff that has been around for, for centuries. And by just changing a management style completely or like 
change your sourcing completely, you can um, you can really build a very attractive business, uh, billion dollar businesses over the years. Um, now I'm not sure this is such an advantage in the in the startup world because a that's kind of common already in the startup world, and b things move so fast, right? You don't have you don't often have enough time to compound it out. Let's put it this way. So these things need to compound in three four years, and then either the next new thing is, is showing up. Um, or you know the, the the spectacular growth you attach yourself to, like this wave, um, so to speak, um, stops. But but you know every business is different. There was a, um, a Czech uh, business I read about, and they were able to um, to bootstrap their business. I think it's software um, for for Android. It's a developer kit for Android, and they just um, sold it for they just sold it for um, three hundred million, four hundred million. Uh, that was pretty spectacular. Like they never raised any money, right? They just literally just built and had happy, happy employees. Um, um, very, very bootstrap. I think they had three, three hundred people. I don't know how they pulled that off, but that was a pretty, pretty amazing success story. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I think now the the way I am defining success for simplifying is is not the valuation. It, it's not the income. As long as my employees, my contractors can be paid and they're happy, and I'm happy as well, That that's sort of where I want to be. And, you know, let's say in, I don't know, five or 10 years, um, I, I want to do something else and, and want to try something else, then, you know, I, I could look at selling it. But for now, it's kind of contentment and uh, growing something at a sustainable sort of scale and uh, level and just enjoying the process more than anything. Um, you know, when I first launched the site, it I didn't really think about, okay, this could get 10 million page views within two years. That did not go through my mind. My mind was, okay, if I could perhaps get half a million page views a month and sustain a small team and myself and actually do something I'm passionate about, then I'm happy. Um, I've got funds from previous businesses I've sold. I've got property investment. That that will help me as well. And uh, yeah, it, it's really grown beyond my wildest dreams. Um and it, it, it's been nice. It's been, uh, you know, really fun, and I'm, yeah, very thankful for how it's gone so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's an amazing success story. Um, have you ever looked into crypto? Is that something you 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 you're passionate about, um, or you want to, you know, use your startup juices? I've dabbled with a crypto before. Um, yeah, yeah. Back when I was living in London. Um, Gosh, it would have been like 2017, maybe. I put um, £5,000 into an ICO. Um, just really as a, a bit of a, you know, see how it goes. That ICO ended up going up 20 times when the coin was released. So I turned that 5000 into 100000 and then it crashed again. So mm-hmm. I ended up with maybe, I don't know, £8,000. Um, I converted that back into Bitcoin. And ever since then, I've just held back. Um I've been following the price of Bitcoin recently, but um, you know it's very volatile. Um, I feel happy that I've, I've got a small amount of Bitcoin, but it's not something I'm really actively kind of looking into day to day in trading. Um, I know a lot of people are doing that right now and they're successful at it, but um, for me, I'm just like watching it go up and just being like, "Oh, cool, this is a uh, interesting," and you, you see all the press and. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, but it's uh, not something I'm uh, dabbling in now. Um, you know, it's just sat there, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, the, the question, question seems to be how many more doublings do we get, right? 
So it kind of reads like, like the stories from the 2000s when you look at Yahoo and it, it exceeded their really bullish sales target um, or, or value target that the banks put on it at the, at the sell side. And you would say, oh, now we have to come up with like 15 more reasons that it should go up. And the same thing seems to be true for Bitcoin right now, right? So first it was like a tool and then it became a currency and now it is like this inflation hedge and now it is... Um, the only way you can power the digital economy. So these stories keep keep changing um, relatively quickly. And um, uh, I, I was just reading this this morning. Um, someone was comparing it to the valuation of gold and um, said if it is as the same valuation, the same market cap as, as gold, it would be seven hundred thousand um, one bitcoin. So <laughs> there's a lot of room left if you if you apply the same metrics. Now, obviously, can it get there? Who knows, right? It is definitely a mania. But with most of these manias, um, is something good usually comes out of it. Uh, it's not what you think, um, and it's very hard to predict, what, like we did in '99. Um, but a lot of good things came out of it, right? The only real money was made then by Amazon and Google investors, which were barely around in '99, or Google wasn't around at all, but Amazon was tiny. And uh, it wasn't Yahoo. So it's impossible to predict. And I think the same is true for crypto. Once everyone goes into this crypto mindset, it will really help. But that's the productivity growth. I'm, I'm so worried about that because it hasn't happened for a long time. Um, but it probably won't be Bitcoin. You know, it might be Dogecoin or something that layers on top of that and makes something extremely useful. Uh, people are kind of struggling finding out that Bitcoin is so slow to actually use in everyday's life. Right? Nobody wants to wait 50 minutes at the bakery to figure out if your Bitcoin transaction is clear. That's ridiculous. But it is the first we had, right? And it's the one with the biggest market cap so far. So Dodge might be the answer. I love the logo. I hope it's Dogecoin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it sound like 1999? Then what does right? So no, I mean it's 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 you never know with these things. I think there's something there, but it's it's probably not what we all think right now. But it doesn't. I don't have the 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 view to to look through this. And um, there's something strange going on with with the way um, central banks are acting. Um, and this is. This is making this is making it much easier for Bitcoin. Let's put it this way. I think a lot of people, your and my generation, they are not really they are not really too interested in putting all their money into gold and silver, which is the other big inflation hedge. Like if if they have to choose, they would choose Bitcoin, just because the logo is better. No, I don't I don't know what it is. Um, but it's more an emotional um, attachment than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you know you invest in gold and stuff. You, you don't see it, and it's the same with Bitcoin, but if you can't see both, then yeah, I think young people will just be like, okay, let, let's try Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting for sure. Um, and, I, you know, I'm just sat there kind of watching it from the back end, and if I lose all of my money in Bitcoin, I don't, I don't care at all. I mean, it's really just a, a bit of fun. Um, but there are a lot of people who, who take it seriously and, you hear stories of uh, people like remortgaging their house and uh, doing all, all these crazy things. And I, I, yeah, I think it's uh, rather bullish. Yeah, those only happen in the UK, those stories. <laughs> we don't have them in the US at all, at all. Uh, well, we have our own troubles. Um, yeah. Well, um, that was really interesting, Aaron. Um, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for doing this. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. I hope we're gonna we hope we're gonna see you again. Um, and Simple Flying is having uh, ten million page views. You said you were at five now. 
I'm at 12 at the moment. So, uh, oh, okay. So it's going to be 24. May, may, maybe 20. Okay, 24. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Speak soon. Talk soon. Ciao.